Chapter 9 of A Doubter's Doubts About Science and Religion by Robert Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Irrationalism of Infidelity. Christ is still left, is the solace Mill would offer us as we survey the wreck which rationalism makes of faith. To that life he appeals as supplying a standard of excellence and a model for imitation. Who among his disciples, he demands, was capable of inventing the sayings ascribed to Jesus, or of imagining the character revealed in the Gospels? Do not such words as these suggest that if Christianity would waive its transcendental claims and make terms with unbelief, the record of that life might afford the basis for a universal religion? a really Catholic faith. But who and what was this Jesus of the rationalist, whose life is to be our model? The answer to this simple question will expose the fallacy of the whole position. The Christ of the Gospels was the Son of God, who worked miracles without number, and who claimed with the utmost definiteness and solemnity that his words were in the strictest sense a divine revelation. But as regards his miracles, the rationalist tells us that his biographers were deceived, and as for his teaching, they misunderstood and perverted it. But if they blundered thus in matters as to which ordinary intelligence and care would have made error or mistake impossible, how can we repose any trust whatever in their records? What materials have we from which to construct a life of Christ at all? And if we decide that these scriptures are not authentic, and that Christ was merely human, the Sermon on the Mount sinks to the level of a homily which Matthew framed on the traditions of his master's words. And as for the fourth gospel, having regard to the time when it was written, and to the fact that the synoptics know nothing of its distinctive teaching, we must acknowledge that for such chapters as those which purport to record the most sacred of all sacred words, spoken on the eve of the crucifixion, we are mainly indebted to the piety and genius of the beloved disciple. The modern Jew, moreover, cannot be far astray when he insists that Paul was the real founder of the Christian system. His was the boldest enterprise, as Dr. Hanak declares, for he ventured on it without being able to appeal to a single word of his master's. If men would but use their brains, they would see that once we drift away from the anchorage of the old beliefs, nothing can save us from being drawn into the rapids which end in sheer agnosticism. This does not prove the truth of Christianity, but it exposes the untenableness of the infidel position. These infidel books habitually assume that, if we refuse their nostrums, superstition is our only refuge. This is quite in keeping with the amazing conceit which characterizes them. Wisdom was born with the agnostics. They have monopolized the meagre stock of intelligence which the evolutionary process has as yet produced for the guidance of the race. But there are Christians in the world who have quite as much sense as they have, who detest superstition as much as they do, and who have far more experience in detecting fallacies and exposing frauds. And if such men are Christians, it is not because they are too stupid to become infidels. For faith is not superstition, and in presence of a divine revelation, unbelief betokens mental obliquity, if not moral degradation. 
thoughtless people are betrayed into supposing that there is something very clever in not believing but in this life the formula i don't believe more often betokens dull-wittedness than shrewdness it is the refrain of the stupidest man upon the jury a mere negation of belief moreover is seldom possible it generally implies belief in the alternative to what we reject the sceptic may hesitate in order to examine the credentials of a revelation but no one who has a settled creed ever hesitates at all and the atheist has such a creed he believes that there is no god if we do not believe a man to be honest we usually believe him to be a fraud if we refuse the testimony of witnesses about matters that are too plain and simple to allow of mere misapprehension or honest mistake we must hold them to be impostors and rogues and nothing less than this is implied in the position held by men like herbert spencer and leslie stephen but the infidel will deny that he impugns the integrity of the apostles and evangelists he only questions their intelligence he asks us to believe that they were so weak and credulous that their testimony to the miracles for example must be rejected but the miracles were not rare incidences of dark-room seances they were public events which occurred day by day and usually in the presence of hostile critics no person of ordinary intelligence therefore could have been mistaken as to the facts what then do we know of the men on whose evidence we accept them their writings have been translated into every known language they hold a unique place in the classic literature of the world and the sublime morality and piety which pervade them command universal admiration certain it is therefore that if the new testament is to be accounted for on natural principles its authors must have been marvellously gifted both intellectually and morally and yet these are the men whose testimony is to be flung aside with contempt when they give a detailed description of events which happened in open day before their eyes to talk of offering them a fool's pardon is absurd if their narratives be false we must give up all confidence in human nature and write them down as an abnormally clever gang of abnormally profane impostors and hypocrites but this alternative is more untenable than the other it is absolutely certain that the men of the new testament were neither scoundrels nor fools and no more than this is needed to undermine the infidel position it is not necessary to prove that the gospels are a divine revelation it will suffice to show that they are credible records and this much is guaranteed to us by the character of the men who wrote them as a test case let us take the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand recorded in all the four gospels i begin with the first and i will not speak of the writer as saint matthew the apostle of christ but of matthew the ex-tax collector such a man we may be sure was at least as shrewd and as suspicious as any of the infidels who with amazing conceit dispose of his testimony he records that on a certain day in a desert place he assisted in distributing bread and fish to a vast multitude that gathered to hear the lord's teaching there were five thousand men besides women and children that the supply was five loaves and two fishes that they did all eat and were filled and they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full and this is confirmed by the writer of the fourth gospel who also took part in the distribution of the food and who gives details which prove the accuracy with which he remembered what occurred 
if we assume that the other evangelists were not present their narratives become incidentally important as showing that the miracle was a matter of common knowledge and discussion among the disciples miracles of another kind the infidel gets rid of to his own satisfaction by taking each in detail and appealing to what we know of the infirmity of human testimony or the effects of hysteria and the power of mind or will over the body but this miracle is one of many that cannot possibly be accounted for on natural principles and mistake or illusion was no less impossible that the narrative arose out of a parable is the nonsense of sham sceptics and real fools for the witnesses were admittedly neither idiots nor rogues but men of the highest intelligence and probity and this being so the facts are established and the only question open is what explanation can be given of them what explanation is possible save that divine power was in operation the infidel therefore so far from being the philosopher he pretends to be is the blind dupe of prejudice and this is in effect the defence pleaded for voltaire by his latest english apologist to him we are told Lea farm if it meant christianity at all meant that which was taught in rome in the eighteenth century and not by the sea of galilee in the first it meant the religion which lit the fires of smithfield and prompted the tortures of the inquisition in a word voltaire was ignorant of the distinction between christianity and what is called the christian religion not strange perhaps in the case of an eighteenth-century frenchman but inexcusable in the case of cultured englishmen of our own times for the distinction is clear upon the open page of scripture and of history how indeed can it be missed by any one who has read the story of the martyrs for the martyrs were the representatives and champions of christianity the christian religion it was that tortured and murdered them but this is a digression while the aggressive infidel has no special claim to consideration the honest-minded sceptic is entitled to respect and sympathy and never was the path of the truth-seeker more beset with difficulties for the development of the rival apostasies of the last days so plainly revealed in scripture go on apace on the one side there is a national lapse toward the errors and superstitions from which we suppose the reformation had for ever delivered us and on the other there is an abandonment of the great truths to which the reformation owed its power these apostasies moreover are well organized under zealous and able leaders and while their discordant cries are ever in our ears truth is fallen in the street in the national church the great evangelical party has effaced itself and fallen into line behind the champions of the pagan superstitions of the christian religion and though in the free churches as in the establishment there are great numbers of true and earnest men who refuse to bow the knee to any baal the only corporate testimony ever heard is the gospel of humanity which as scripture warns us will lead us at last to the worship of the antichrist we are pestered by the nostrums of feather-headed enthusiasts who take the first will-o'-the-wisp for a safe guide and patch up a new religion out of scraps and tatters of half-understood science or of quasi-christian ministers who are busy framing systems of morality apart from the ancient creeds and trying to evolve a satisfactory creed out of theosophical moonshine 
in the past superstition and rationalism were the open enemies of the faith but now they are entrenched within the citadel and half the churches and chapels in the land are places to be shunned organized christianity is becoming an organized apostasy and the time seems drawing near when practical expression must be given to the cry to your tents o israel the very church of god which ought to be the appeaser of god is the provoker of god these words seem as apt to-day as when they were written fifteen centuries ago i will here avail myself of the language of a great commentator and divine dean alford of canterbury after speaking of the apostasy of the jewish church beginning with the worship of the golden calf he proceeds as follows strikingly parallel with this runs the history of the christian church not long after the apostolic times the golden calves of idolatry were set up by the church of rome what the effect of the captivity was to the jews that of the reformation has been to christendom the first evil spirit has been cast out but by the growth of hypocrisy secularity and rationalism the house has become empty swept and garnished swept and garnished by the decencies of civilization and the discoveries of secular knowledge but empty of living and earnest faith and he must read prophecy but ill who does not see under all these seeming improvements the preparation for the final development of the man of sin the great repossession when idolatry and the seven other more wicked spirits shall bring the outward frame of so-called christendom to a fearful end. End of chapter 9